Romans chapter 5. So just kind of a reminder of what we talked about last week. Uh, it's, it's important that we understand because we kind of see, um, I, I mentioned it briefly last week, but it almost looks like you see a contradiction. But what we saw last week in Amos chapter 4 is we see God pronouncing some pretty serious judgment on Israel and basically telling them there's no getting out of this one. What had been prophesied was going to happen. There was no getting out of it. Okay, So as a whole, they were in trouble. But yet we see that in here in chapter 5, we're going to see that there's kind of hope for a remnant. And thank God for that. And then at the end of this chapter, we're going to see too, it kind of mentions the day of the Lord. And there's some really important things I want to cover about the day of the Lord. I want to talk about understanding the day of the Lord. Because people often get confused when it comes to the day of the Lord. And so hopefully uh, we'll see some things here as we look in the book of Amos tonight that will help us understand the day of the Lord and um, not get so confused when we're reading what it says in the Old Testament about the day of the Lord and reading what we see in the New Testament about the day of the Lord. So let's go ahead and start reading in verse 1 of chapter 5. It says, Hear ye this word which I take up against you, even a lamentation, O house of Israel. The virgin of Israel is fallen. She shall no more rise. She is forsaken upon her land. There is none to raise her up. For thus saith the Lord God, the city that went out by a thousand shall leave an hundred, and that which went forth by an hundred shall leave ten to the house of Israel. For thus saith the Lord unto the house of Israel, Seek ye me, and ye shall live. So right there, it looks like he's telling them that, you know what, you know, you still have a chance. But no, he's speaking here to the remnant. Because we see that what he mentioned last week, that there, hey, there was no getting out of this judgment that's coming. And right here, he's telling them, hey, you're fallen. Okay? You're done for. But he's telling them as a people to the individuals here that, you know what, seek me. And notice how he says, you know, a thousand are, uh, where is it there? They went out by a thousand, but they'll leave a hundred. There's a remnant, okay? Notice the remnant. God is not utterly destroying them. And we never see anywhere in the Bible where God just completely, utterly rejects someone just because of their bloodline, okay? Now, as a whole, we see some really severe judgments on some groups. We see some very severe judgments on the Moabites and the Ammonites. We looked at some of that last week or the week before, yet... There were people like Ruth that was a Moabitess that got saved, wasn't there? And so understand that even though Israel has, you know, they rejected Christ, and this here is talking about, you know, during this time in the Old Testament before they got taken captive. Same thing that we see here is the same thing that happened later. Even though Israel rejected Messiah and is basically cursed, people who descend from there can still be saved. But it's only going to be a remnant. Alright, it only ever has been a remnant, and it only ever will be a small remnant. We're never going to see a, you know, a, a massive revival amongst Israel where they're going to like rise to power and glory again. And I say that as a physical people. They're not going, they're not going to. People are saying they're going to, they're going to inherit the kingdom. No, flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. Okay? And they're not going to get it just because they are of Jewish descent. They have to believe on Christ. And thankfully, even though as a physical people, they violated the covenant, they broke that covenant, even though they did that, they, they can still obtain mercy and they can still be saved as individuals. And they can be a part of that remnant. Go ahead and turn over to uh, Romans chapter 11 and verse 1. Romans chapter 11 and verse 1. People often like to read Romans 11. All of Romans 11 and act like it's talking about all future stuff. But this has all been fulfilled. Paul was talking, when Paul wrote Romans 11, he was talking about his time that he was living in. And he said, I say then, hath God cast away his people? Okay? God forbid. It, it's, it would be very easy to understand why people would think that God's just completely through with Israel and just because they're a Jew, just forget about them. It's easy to see that because they are so wicked as a nation. Because it's been, you know, it's been so bad for them for so long. But he says, God forbid, not because there's something coming in the future. He says, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. He says, right here, I'm living proof 
that a Jew can still be saved. Those who descend from Israel can still be saved. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. What ye not what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets. Okay? Elijah's preaching this. He's praying this to God. He's accusing Israel to God, and he's accurate in all these things he's accusing them of. He's saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. So we see right there during Paul's time that he's showing that, you know what? Yes, as a people, they have failed. You know, they've, they've lost the blessing in Romans 2, you know, he, or he, uh, he mentioned how he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. In Romans 9, he said, For they are not all Israel that are of Israel. There's a lot of harsh things said against people from Israel. So when he gets to Romans 11, though, he's got to prove, he's got to back up what he said in Romans 10.13, where he said, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He said, any, whoever calls the Lord is going to be saved. Which is going to cause the reader to think, well, after all these things you said about Israel, does that include them? And he's saying, yes, it does include them too. If they will call on the Lord, they will be saved. They can get in on that new covenant that was promised to them in Jeremiah, that was in Isaiah, that promised that God was going to send a deliverer that would turn on God in this way from Jacob, and that was Jesus Christ. He did all that, and those who are descend from Israel can be saved. And we see in Amos chapter 4, even though... As a whole, God says, all right, y'all are in trouble. There's no getting out of this. Judgment is coming. We see in chapter 5, he gives hope to a remnant. He gives hope to a remnant that, hey, yes, as a, as a whole, uh, y'all are in big trouble. But you know what? Some of you can find salvation. Some of you can get right with me. And some did. After all the horrible things that Israel did throughout their history, God never utterly destroyed them. All right? There, will, there have always been Jews... And there always will be Jews. Why? Because of God's covenant with Abraham. And I'm saying physical Jews there. There, there always will be. And they will always be capable of salvation if they will believe on Jesus Christ. And you say, well, what, you know, what advantage hath the Jew then? Well, much every way chiefly. Under them were given the oracles of God. You know, they, you know, they're, they're not, they, God gave them everything. God gave them his word. He gave them his law. And a lot of times you see some of the curses on them, and it's like, well, that's not fair. But no, they had every advantage in the world. You know, the Jews today, are they supposedly read the Old Testament. So they ought to know better. They ought to, they ought to know. They ought to understand. So anyway, we see, though, there's still hope for individuals that will look to Jesus. So you might be from a family that's full of lost people. Okay? It doesn't mean you have to be lost. You can call on the Lord and get saved. You know, and... Uh, thank God that that's how he works. So look at what it says in verse five. So he's telling, he's told them in the, in the previous four verses that, you know, you, he's trying to get these individuals to look to him. Okay. But notice what it says here in verse five. He says, but seek not Bethel, nor enter into Gilgal and pass not to Beersheba for Gilgal shall surely go into captivity and Bethel shall come to naught. Seek the Lord and ye shall live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and devour it, and there be none to quench it in Bethel. Ye who turn judgment to wormwood and leave off righteousness in the earth, seek him that maketh the seven stars in Orion and turneth the shadow of death into the morning and maketh the day dark with night and call for the waters out of the sea and poureth them out upon the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. That strengtheneth the spoiled against the strong, so that the spoiled shall come against the fortress. They hate him that rebuketh in the gate, and they abhor him that speaketh uprightly. So right here, what he's saying there in uh, in verse 5, he's telling them they need to seek for the Lord in the right places. Okay, Because remember, Jerusalem was the place that they were supposed to worship, wasn't it? And we see that when the kingdom split, they often set up high places and place to, places to worship in Bethel. I believe that, that was where Jeroboam put those golden calves so they wouldn't go worship to Jerusalem. And he caused the people in that northern kingdom to transgress. And so these places that he's mentioning, where he's, that uh, God mentions where he's telling them not to go, these are the places where their other gods were. 
He's basically telling them, hey, seek the Lord, but you know what? You gotta seek the right Lord. You can't just seek any God. And that's the way, that's the attitude of people today is, you know, it doesn't really matter which God you serve. Well, actually it does. It does matter which God, which God you serve. People like to say, well, we all serve the same God. We all serve, you know, God the Father, but you know, there's people that don't want to acknowledge Jesus. Well, you know what? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If you want to seek God, you know where you need to look? You need to look to Jesus Christ. He's the only one that's going to get you to the Father. He's the only one that paid for your sins. He's the only one that lived a sinless life. And you don't get to just go searching for God wherever you want to search. You've got to search in the place where He is at, and He is in Christ Jesus. And so... Right there is basically what he's trying to tell them there. Yeah, seek the Lord, but don't think you can just go seek any God. And I wish our world would see this, because they do. They just have this attitude. And even a lot of Christian people today, so-called Christians, are just all accepting of all faiths. No matter what they believe, no matter what their doctrine is, no matter what gods that they serve, you know, they're, it's, all, it's all good, you know, as long as you're sincere. Right here he's telling them, hey, if you want out of this mess... You better seek me. And don't go seeking in Bethel and Beersheba. Don't go seeking in these places where your other gods are at. You better seek after me, the one true God. And you know what? We even, we're even seeing this today, even amongst Baptist churches, where, you know, yes, okay, they, they can't get away from John 14, 6, where he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. They can't get away from that. But now it's like, it doesn't matter which Jesus, you know? You have the Trinity deniers, you know, that deny Jesus. You know, they're denied, they deny the Trinity. Well, then you're, they're talking about another Jesus. Okay? You've got to have the right Jesus. You have the, you know, the three gospel people that they talk about, yeah, you got to go through Jesus too, but then they teach those other gospels. They teach there's been other ways of salvation throughout history. You know, you've got the, you've got people that are always perverting things about Christ. You have the Catholics who believe in Christ and they believe in the death, burial, and resurrection, but they believe in faith plus works. Okay? That's not, that's not the same thing. Okay? And you know what? There's a, there's a lot of things about their Jesus that's different than our Jesus. Okay? A lot of, of things. And so, you know, you know, there, the big question is, you know, how many things do we have to get wrong about Jesus before we're talking about another Jesus? And it's like people have this attitude, well, just because some country music singer mentioned Jesus, they're saved. Just because some politicians you know, mentioned Jesus, he's saved. But hey, what are these people putting their faith in? What do they actually believe about Jesus? The Mormons believe in Jesus, but they believe he was just one of many gods. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe in Jesus, but they don't believe that he was God. So y'all, y'all see how if you're going to find the Lord, if you're going to find God, you've got to search in the right place. For us today, that is Jesus Christ. Okay? He's who we go, that's who you go through to get to heaven. Jesus Christ, not a religion, not any works. Jesus Christ, you've got to look in the right places. If you're going to be a part of that remnant, if Israel today, if Jews of today want to go to heaven, if they want to be a part of this remnant, they need to forget about trying to bring about a, you know, a kingdom for them as a physical people. They need to forget that. They need to stop looking to the Temple Mount. You know what they need to do? They need to look to Jesus Christ. They need to stop looking at the Temple Mount and they need to just kind of look off outside those city walls there on a place called Mount Calvary where Jesus died. That's what they need to look to if they want to find salvation. If they do, they can be a part of that remnant. But if they don't, they're in trouble. They're in big trouble and they're just they're going to go down with the rest of the group. So it has to be Jesus Christ. Look at Isaiah chapter 45 verse 15. Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 15 it says verily thou art a god that hidest thyself, O God of Israel, the savior. Okay? The sa- O God of Israel the savior. Now who's the savior? Jesus. All right? Jesus Christ is the Savior. The Son is the Savior. I would, uh, it says, They shall be ashamed and also confounded, all of them. They shall go down to confusion that are makers of idols. They're obviously seeking after other gods. But Israel shall be saved. That's where all Israel shall be saved comes from. That comes from Isaiah forty-five seventeen. But Israel shall be saved in the Lord with an everlasting salvation. 
Ye shall not be ashamed, nor confounded, world without end. Romans 9.33 says, As it is written, Behold, I lay in sign a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Y'all see that? Those who seek after other gods will be ashamed. You know why? Because they won't get to heaven. Okay? But those who look to Jesus Christ, okay, those who are saved in the Lord, those who followed the God of Israel, the Savior, who was revealed later, was Jesus Christ, all of them will be saved. All of them. When Romans 11 says all Israel shall be saved, it was it was speaking about a very specific group of people. It was those who were looking to the Lord. It was those who were looking to the, the God of Israel, the Savior. Though That was real Israel. Even back in those days. So, in Romans 10.11 says, For the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on Him shall not be ashamed. Those who are looking to Jesus Christ for their salvation will not be disappointed. They will not make haste is another way it's, it's put in the Old Testament. They will, they, there will not be a shock. Okay? I, I often illustrate it this way. It's like, you know, we've all been stood up before. Okay? Maybe you told, somebody told you they were going to meet you at a certain place at a certain time and you went, you showed up, you were ready for them, but then they didn't show up. Okay? And you're disappointed. Okay? If it was at a restaurant or something, and you're on a date, and you're there waiting, and then all of a sudden, you know, yeah, your date doesn't show up. That's embarrassing. You're ashamed. Well, those of us who are planning on getting to heaven just by faith in Jesus Christ, just trusting in Him to get us there, we're not going to be ashamed. But we're not going to be disappointed. But those who are relying on their works when Jesus Christ comes back, they will be ashamed. They will be disappointed. They will, because He's not coming for them. He's coming for those who are of faith. So it, does, it has to be Jesus Christ. He is the only way of salvation. So look at what it says in verse 11 of Amos, Amos chapter 5. For as much therefore, as your treading is upon the poor, and ye take from him burdens of wheat, Ye have built houses of hewn stone, but ye shall not dwell in them. Ye have planted pleasant vineyards, but ye shall not drink wine of them. For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins. They afflict the just, they take a bribe, and they turn aside the poor in the gate from their right. Therefore, the prudent shall keep silence in that time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that ye may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, shall be with you as ye have spoken. Hate the evil and love the good and establish judgment in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious unto the remnant of Joseph. Notice that. It may be he'll be gracious to the remnant. Showing once again, we're not contradicting what we talked about last week in chapter 4. He's talking to the remnant now. Okay? And thank God he does that. Because have you ever just been sitting there and you, and you watch the news and you look at what's going on in our country? And we know the Bible. We know what God thinks about the abortion. We know what God thinks about the perversion that goes on in our country. We know what God thinks about those things. But you know what? Thankfully, God does not just see me as an American. Thank God for that. He sees me as Tommy McMurtry. He sees me as an individual that he died on the cross for. And you know what? I don't have to... I can distance myself from the rest of this country. You know, I can find mercy for myself. Okay, and while I might have to go through some hard times because God's punishing this country, you know what? In the end, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to go to heaven. The worst thing that can happen to me is I can get killed and I can go to heaven. I don't have to go to hell with the vast majority of this country because God doesn't just speak to nations as a whole. God will speak to individuals too. Thank God that He does that. And He's doing that right here. He's talking to the remnant. Verse 16, Therefore the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord saith thus, Wailing shall be in all, in all streets, and they shall say in all the highways, Alas, alas, and they shall call the husbandmen to mourning, and such as are skillful of lamentation to wailing, and in all the vineyards shall be wailing, for I will pass through thee, saith the Lord. So, we see in this passage, all these things that they were working for, all these things they were trying to accomplish on their own, they, they were for nothing. Okay, They needed to seek after the Lord. See, Israel's, Israel's problem that they had, unlike what the dispensationalists try to teach, it was not the Gentiles were not their problem. Their sin was their problem. 
Their sin was their problem. And that's why when the Bible says out of Zion will come a deliverer that will turn ungodliness away from Jacob. That was their problem. Do you realize that we would have nothing to worry about? I mean, nothing. Our nation would have no enemies we would need to fear if we just didn't sin. Alright? But that's a greater enemy than the actual enemies we do have. You know, think about it. If we didn't, if we just didn't have sin, I don't think we would need guns. I don't think we would need a military. I don't think we'd need bombs. We wouldn't need nukes. God would protect us if we were without sin. But at the same time, what do you, you know, I think we're better off winning battles, you know, with weapons or, you know, winning battles against, you know, the Muslims and all these other countries than against our own selves, aren't we? Because our sin problem, that is the biggest problem we have. Our flesh is the biggest enemy that we have. But thank God a deliverer came to turn ungodliness away from Jacob. He died on the cross. He paid for our sins. And so even though today we're still in this flesh, we have the Holy Spirit of God and God can give us victory over this flesh. We don't have to be a servant to sin. We can actually do the right thing. And God did that. He sent that deliverer for Israel. He told that, hey, a deliverer is coming. I've been pronouncing judgments on you for chapter after chapter after chapter because of your sin. And what they were supposed to be doing, whenever the prophets are coming and they're you know, just hurling all these judgments their way and bringing up all their sins, what they were supposed to do is call on the Lord and just say, Lord, help us. Lord, save us. Because we've got a huge problem. And you know, I was reading, I should have wrote it down, it had nothing to do with my... My notes, I was reading another passage today. Can't even remember where it was, but um, remember when they said, when they were singing Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. That word Hosanna means, oh, save. And if you go back, I think it's in Psalms, I can't remember where it's at. It's meant, save us, says, oh, save us, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Do you all realize when Jesus rode through, he did that triumphal entry, and they're saying, save us, save us. Well, how come they didn't all get saved from that? The Bible says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, right? Was that not the Lord writing in there? How come they all didn't get saved when they're all crying out, Hosanna? You know why? Because they weren't asking Him to save them from their sins. They were asking Him to save them from the Romans. See, unfortunately, the dispensationalists had got to those people back then and were telling them, you know, a Messiah is coming to deliver you from all your Gentile enemies. You know? And, you know, that, that's, you know, that's what's supposed to happen right now. His name's Emmanuel. It's not supposed to be Jesus. Don't pay attention to him. You know, they, you know, they, they, they've been corrupted. And so while they're all crying out, save us, save us, they're not sa saying save us from our sins. Because what did they do a short time later? A short time later, the multitude's crying out, crucify him. Once they figured out, hey, he's not about to overthrow the Romans, then they're like, you know what? Forget this guy. They weren't saying save us because they wanted to be saved from their sins. They wanted to be saved from the Romans. That was their problem that they had. They, but unfortunately, they didn't want to acknowledge that. They did not recognize that. And therefore, most of them did not get saved. There were a lot that did. Once again, there was a remnant. There were some who did get saved. And thank God for it. But many of them didn't. Israel's problem was focusing on the earthly instead of the heavenly. Hey, and you, and the dispensationals today, they love to obsess about the land. You know, it's all about the land. They call it the holy land. You know, they're just, they, they just obsess about the land. Okay. Just like their brothers who are children of the devil, the Jews, they do, they obsess about the land. Unlike people like Abraham, who is seeking after a heavenly country we see in Hebrews. That's what Abraham was looking for. He was seeking after a heavenly country. And that's what we're seeking after. But unfortunately for many of the Jews, they were always focused on the physical. And therefore, they missed out on the spiritual. And you know what? One of these days, God is going to restore them to that land. But it's going to be in the millennium. And unless they get saved by faith in Jesus Christ now, they're never going to get it. They're never going to get it. You know, you see all these prophecies in the Old Testament about Israel. You know, like with Gog and Magog. 
You know, the Gog, people, a lot of the pre-tribbers are still saying the Gog and Magog battle is supposed to happen before the rapture or before, uh, you know, the millennium. When it's clearly after the millennium. But it talks about Israel, you know, dwelling in unwalled villages. They've got walls still right now. Israel is a very protected place, full of enemies. And that's not about to change anytime soon. That time that's talking about then it's talking about in the millennium. And unfortunately today, many of these Jews that are out there just striving to get a hold of that land are never going to get it. Physical Jews are never going to possess the land. Only those who are of faith. Abraham's real seed. They're going to get the land one of these days, but not until the millennium. And sadly, once again, many of them are missing it because just like they were in the Old Testament, they were focused on the physical instead of the spiritual. They were focused on being, you know, getting rid of their enemies they have now. Just like the Jews today, they all want to go pray at the wailing wall, praying for you know, God to get rid of the Muslims. But they don't need to be praying for God to get rid of the Muslims. They need to be praying for God to get rid of their sin. Oh, and guess what? The, the work to get rid of their sin was already done 2,000 years ago by Jesus Christ. But they refused to acknowledge that. So their, their real enemy is never going to be defeated because they will not call on the Lord for salvation. So let's go to verse 18. This is what I want to really focus on. So he says here, Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. As if a man did flee from a lion and a bear met him. Or went into the house and leaned his hand upon the wall and a serpent bit him. I love that verse. I've had days that felt like that before. It's like you avoid one problem and another one pops up. It's like you're fleeing from a lion, you get away, but then boom, you run into a bear. You're running away from the bear, you get in your house, you think you're safe, you lean on the wall, you relax, and then you get bit by a snake. And he's telling them, hey, that's what the day of the Lord's going to be like for you. Hey, you're going to think you escape one thing, but something else is going to get you. I'm going to get you. You can't, you can run, but you can't hide. It's pretty much what he's saying right there. And it says in verse 20, shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light, even very dark and no brightness in it. I hate, I despise your feast days. Um, uh, and I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. Though ye offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them. Neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beast. Take thou away from me the noise of thy songs, for I will not hear the melody of thy vials, but let judgment run down as waters and righteousness as a mighty stream. Okay? And the only way they're going to do that is by faith in Christ. Right, that's the only way that's going to happen. But notice, I want to point out a few things too about the day of the Lord. All right? Because, first off, you know, he says, Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. Now, wait a minute. Aren't we looking forward to the day of the Lord? Okay? Now, I believe it's appropriate for the righteous to look forward to the day of the Lord. But for them, you know, he's saying, you know, woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. These people are the ones that are in trouble. These are the ones that aren't saved. Hey, for you, this is the day of darkness and no light in it at all. This is something that's going to be a problem for you. But notice, you know, you know so the, day, the righteous can look forward to the day of the Lord, but not the wicked. But one of the things I want to point out here, and this is a very important thing that people need to understand about the day of the Lord is the day, I believe the day of the Lord's a rapture. Okay? But understand, there was an Old Testament day of the Lord. Okay? And many times in the Old Testament, when we see references to the day of the Lord, it is referencing when they were going to be taken over and they were going to be destroyed and taken captive. Okay? But yet, many of those passages we can apply those to the day of the Lord that's to come in the future. But at the same time, not every verse you see surrounding those passages about the day of the Lord are about us and something we can look forward to. Some of those things have to do with what already happened way back during that time. So how do we make sense of it? How do we know when we're reading in the Old Testament about the day of the Lord what applies to us and what doesn't apply to us. Because it gets real confusing sometimes when you, especially in the minor prophets, we see many prophecies kind of interjected that we know are future. We have no doubt 
that these prophecies that they mention in these minor prophets are future, but at the same time, there's many other things they said in those same chapters that are all fulfilled, that we know have nothing to do with us. So how can we know which scriptures it's appropriate to use about the day of the Lord when talking about end times prophecy, all right? So, understand, so sometimes we see the day of the Lord portrayed as something to look forward to in the New Testament, but um, in some places it's something that we dread. And so what's the difference? And it, the difference, it depends on who he's talking to. If he's talking to saved people, it's good, Okay. You know, uh, you know, he says, you know, you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Well, that's talking about on lost people. Because he said, but ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Okay? There's a difference. We see, even in the New Testament, there's a contrast when talking about the day of the Lord between saved people and lost people. Lost people need to worry about it. Saved people don't need to worry about it. It's something that we are looking forward to. Often in the New Testament, it refers to it as the day of Christ. A lot of people will tell you the day of Christ and the day of the Lord are two different things. I, I disagree with that. I don't have time to prove that they are the same thing. But I want to show I want to show you all something though about the day of the Lord to prove that there's two different day of the Lords, one in the that already happened in the Old Testament, one that's to come that even a dispensationalist would have to agree with. All right, even somebody who believes the day of Christ and the day of the Lord are different things, I'm going to show you something that proves this where I think we, we, we all have to at least agree on that. So, uh, look at Isaiah chapter 13 and verse 6. I'm going to read you several verses about the day of the Lord, and I'm going to show you a massive difference between what the day of the Lord we see in the Old Testament and the day of the Lord we see in the New Testament. Isaiah 13 verse 6 says, How ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty, Therefore shall all hands be faint, and every man's heart shall melt, and they shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrow shall take hold of them. They shall be in pain as a woman that travaileth. They shall be amazed one at another. Their faces shall be as flames. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. For the stars of the heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light, the sun shall be darkened and is going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. Alright? So notice one of the things it says about the day of the Lord there. It says it's at hand. Okay? It mentions very clearly it's at hand. Notice it mentions the sun being darkened and moon turned to blood. Okay? Now we know that's in the future. We know that's in Revelation 6. We know that happens right before the rapture. So did the sun get turned to darkness and moon to blood back then when the day of the Lord happened? The Bible doesn't tell us for sure if it did or not. And I can't tell you one way or another if that did happen. I will tell you though, Isaiah chapter 13, I do think it's appropriate to apply some of what we see to future. All right? I'll explain why in a little bit, but notice how it says the day of the Lord is at hand. Okay, Isaiah wrote that. Ezekiel chapter 30 verse 3, it says, For the day is near. What day? Even the day of the Lord is near. A cloudy day. And it shall be the time of the heathen. Okay, or the time of the Gentiles. Same thing. It's near. It's a cloudy day. Okay, we know Jesus is going to come back on a cloudy day. Behold, He cometh with clouds. And every eye shall see him. That's going to happen on the day of the Lord. But notice right there in Ezekiel, he said it is near. Okay? Joel 2 1. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. Okay? When something is at hand, it means it is about to happen. Alright? And it was about to happen when that was written in Joel 2 1. Obadiah 1.15, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen, as thou hast done. It shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall be upon thine own head. So there we see it's near. Zephaniah 1.7, Hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord, for the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord hath prepared a sacrifice. He hath bid his guests. So it's near. It's at hand. Verse 14, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hasteth greatly. 
even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty men shall cry there bitterly. Alright, so notice, it's saying it's near. It's at hand. Now, that was over 2,000 years ago. So, was that talking about the day of the Lord we're looking forward to? Or is it talking about something else? Well, it was talking about the same one. You just got to understand that days is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. You know, that's where people would like to go with that. But no, it, it has to be different, okay? Because way back there in the Old Testament, it says the day of the Lord is near, it is nigh at hand. But in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it says, let no man deceive you that the day of Christ is at hand. Okay? Now, this is where even people who believe the day of Christ and the day of the Lord are different are going to have to agree that the Old Testament day of the Lord is different than the New Testament day of the Lord. Okay? Because Paul said in 2 Thessalonians, hundreds of years after all these passages, he says the day of Christ is not at hand. Now, I believe that's the day of the Lord. Okay? But let's just say I'm wrong. All right? Let's just say the day of the Lord is Armageddon. Well, doesn't the rapture happen before Armageddon? Yes. So if the day of Christ that comes before the day of the Lord is not at hand, then the day of the Lord can't be at hand either. So what's going on here? Alright? What's going on here? It's obviously two different day of the Lord's. But yet we see the sun being darkness. We see the moon being turned to blood. We don't see anything in the Old Testament where that happens. Okay? And then we see in Malachi, he mentions, Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before that great and terrible day. Of the Lord, or before the day of the Lord come. Alright? How do we make sense of which one fits where? Okay? Well, I'm glad you asked me that. And that is, you know, uh, that is not the, you know, it's not the easiest thing, because literally there's just so many scriptures we can go to. There's so many scriptures we can go to in the Old Testament. And if you ever try to argue with the dispensationalists on the day of the Lord, what they like to do, what, what always happens, you'll show them a crystal clear Scripture from the New Testament, and then they'll go back and show you a really vague scripture from the Old Testament. You know, and I'm going I'm to show you how we can know what to do uh, whenever this day comes. So, the, uh, look at Acts chapter two, verse twenty. Let's look at what we have to do is we have to look at what's clear in the New Testament. Okay, remember the first covenant; it got broken, didn't it? Why? There, there was no fault in it, but there was a fault in the Jews. There was a fault in Israel. And so God made a new covenant. That new covenant, it superseded the old covenant. All right? There was a change of the law. It mentioned that in Hebrews. Remember, we covered all these things in Hebrews, how there were many things that changed with that new covenant. Okay? So understand that there are, there's going to be a lot of things in the Old Testament that are going to get a little confusing. And we do not have time to look at every verse in the Old Testament and go down every rabbit trail. You can go down because there's a million rabbit trails you can go down. And if you want to know how to find all the rabbit trails, just go find a book on dispensationalism. It will take you on rabbit trails that will get you lost big time. All right? But what we but what they all forget to do, the dispensationalists never do. They never want to focus on what's clear in the New Testament. Because some things did, in fact, change. And look what it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 20. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and notable day of the Lord come. That is a quote from Joel that we read. Joel said that it was nigh and at hand. So, once again, this is an example. Many of the verses that we see about the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, they are dual what we would call dual prophecies they have dual meanings okay so what people often do they often make a mistake of seeing ooh day of the lord's mentioned in that chapter therefore the whole chapter is about our day of the lord in the future and then they get all confused and they get all mixed up on things and they see contradictions they see differences in the day of the lord in the old testament and the day of the lord in the new testament they get they get all confused but understand, those are often dual prophecies. So, so you know what you do when that happens? You stop focusing on what's vague in the Old Testament and you focus on what's clear in the New Testament. And in the New Testament, it's crystal clear that the sun's going to be dark and the moon's going to be turned to blood before the day of the Lord comes. 
And that is in Revelation 6, we see that the, that is the sixth seal. We see in Matthew chapter 24 that the sun is darkened and the moon is turned into blood after the abomination of desolation. After the tribulation of those days, the sun should be turned to darkness and the moon should not give her light and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. We see crystal clear in the New Testament an order of events and that is abomination of desolation, great tribulation, sun turned to darkness and moon turned to blood, then Jesus Christ returning in the clouds. In that order, crystal clear. But then what people all want to do, they all want to go, no, I see what you're saying there about the order of events, but then they want to go back to the Old Testament to prove you wrong. Sorry, you can't do that. That you don't go you do not focus on what is dark, you know, over what is light. You net you interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. But the dispensationalists, they all do the opposite. And why? It's because they, they learn most of their stuff from Jews. They're always referring to the rabbis they talk to. They always they all go get these special revelations from a rabbi or some Jew or some lost person, and then they let that Old Testament passage interpret what's clearly in in or what's in the New Testament, and they ignore those things. That is wrong. Or the ones who don't talk to rabbis, they get their information from lost people, like C.I. Schofield, like John Nelson Darby, like like Clarence Larkin. I mean, truly evil men, they focus on what those guys have to say over what, the, over what the New Testament clearly has to say itself. They read their notes instead of everything else. So we see, though, that the day of the Lord, that is something that we're looking forward to. That's something that, that is to come. And it is appropriate. I think it's appropriate. I think what the rule I try to follow, I use Old Testament passages to prove... Uh, you know, what I believe about end times prophecy. But what I try to do, I try to only use the Old Testament verses that the New Testament refers to. Okay? Because there's a, you know, there's a lot of prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled, they're done. And that's it. And, you know, it, it's the end of story. It already happened. It's done for. And, in fact, I think it's safe to say that most of the Old Testament passages have been fulfilled except for those that were dual in nature. There are many that are dual in nature, but you can find some kind of fulfillment of almost every Old Testament passage. Almost. And that's where the preterists mess up. Okay, You've got the preterists that think all the prophecies have already been fulfilled. Well, that's because they can only see the one fulfillment of them, but there's clearly a dual fulfillment that happens later because there's clearly some things that have not happened yet. Okay, The preterists teach the rapture happened in 70 A.D. That's stupid. All right, the rapture did not happen in 70 A.D. That that's absolutely ridiculous. And you know they they go super literal on certain things, but then they just go overly spiritual on other things. It, it's it's absolute craziness. So you know I, I I believe I believe the day of the Lord, the day of Christ, is the same. I'm not going to take time to prove that. But either way, either way, even if you believe they're two different things. Even a dispensationalist would agree that the day of Christ comes before the day of the Lord. And if the day of Christ is not at hand, if Paul said, let no man deceive you that the day of Christ is at hand, then the day of the Lord is not at hand either. And therefore, I am right in saying that, you know what, when we see these verses, because that confused me a long time ago when I first started studying the day of the Lord. I'm like, saying it's not. saying it's at hand. How could it have been at hand? It hasn't happened yet. It's been over 2,000 years. It's because it did happen in Jeremiah, the time of Jacob's trouble. Okay, The time of Jacob's trouble, that happened already. The time of Jacob's trouble already happened. However, I do believe that there are some dual prophecies there when it comes to the time of Jacob's trouble. Why do I believe that? Because exactly what it talks about, and I'm not going to be able to quote it, but when it talks about the time of Jacob's trouble... Daniel 12 says many of the exact same things, and Matthew 24 says many of the exact same things. So yes, you can prove that the time of Jacob's trouble happened in the Old Testament, but I think it's easy to prove that I think it's Jeremiah chapter 6 where it mentions the time of Jacob's trouble is clearly uh, have a, is a dual prophecy. And, and that's, that's what I believe about that passage. And so we're not going to look at all, all the verses
uh, on the day of the Lord. There's a lot of verses about the day of the Lord. But back to back to Amos chapter five. So I wanted to show that to you because that's mentioned. And we've, so you've got to understand when you're reading the Old Testament, and you see verses about the day of the Lord. Pay attention to them. There could be some prophecies there that are for us that are something for the future. But understand the primary application of what they were talking about was what was about to come upon them. And it was it was very near. It was nigh at hand. And it did come shortly later. And they were taken captive. And they, they went through all kinds of horrible tribulation, you could say. But it was not the great tribulation. So look at what it says in verse 25 of Amos chapter 5. It says, Have ye offered unto me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness forty years, O house of Israel? But ye have borne the tabernacle of Moloch and Cheon, your images, the star of your God, which ye made to yourselves. Therefore I will cause you to go into captivity beyond Damascus, saith the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Now this I think is the most interesting part of all. Okay? I've been telling you, this is all from back then, right? It was all from back then. And it, and it was. But does anybody recognize that verse 26? You have borne the tabernacle of your Moloch and Sheon, your images, the star of your God, which you made into yourselves. Star of Remphan. Alright? Acts chapter 7 and verse 42. Alright? You hear about the star of David? We do not believe in the star of David. The Bible does not talk about a star of David. The Bible does talk about a star of Remphan, though, that the Jews had taken to themselves. And I believe that's what people are using today. I believe that's what churches have on their platforms when they have their Israeli flags. But look what it says in Acts chapter 7, verse 42. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, O ye house of Israel... Have ye offered to me slain beasts and sacrificed by the space of forty years in the wilderness? Yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Remphan, figures which ye made to worship them, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Right there was a direct quote from Amos. And notice how Stephen, when he's preaching this here, he's preaching this to the Jews right then. Now why is this? Why is he, why is he repeating this prophecy to them? Why is it in Acts chapter 2, he mentions, you know, the sun being darkened and the moon and blood before the great notable day of the Lord come? Why are we seeing these things repeated? You know why? Because Israel is making the same mistakes they made before. Israel never learned their lesson. And even though, okay, even though God had pronounced all this judgment, God brought all this punishment on them, but yet God left the remnant Okay, after the Messiah, so judgment came, but that judgment didn't cleanse them, that judgment didn't heal them. Jesus Christ, He came to earth, He died on the cross, He took their sin on Him, He, he paid for all of that, and then what did they do? They rejected that. Okay, they, they ended up rejecting Him for all the same mistakes they had made in the past. And we see how history is repeating itself again. The same things that caused them to turn away from God in the Old Testament are causing them to turn away from God in the New Testament. They rejected God in the Old Testament. They're rejecting Him in the New Testament. They rejected Him in the Old Covenant. And they're rejecting Him in the New Covenant also. And so guess what's going to happen now? They get to experience another day of the Lord. And He is going to come on them as a thief. And they are going to mourn. All the tribes are going to wail. And they that pierced him are going to mourn for him. Because they're going to realize that we did it again. We messed up again. Just, and, just, you know, and they'll admit that. You know, If you talk to a Jew today, they'll admit they messed up in the Old Testament. They'll admit that they got punished. They'll admit that they got taken captive and that it was God judging them. They understand all that stuff. But you know what they can't see today? They can't see that in the New Covenant they're doing the exact same thing they did in the Old Covenant. That even though God made a new covenant, a better covenant with better promises, even though He paid for their sins, even though they can have salvation without works, they're still failing. And they're still missing the boat. And yet, I think it's very interesting how Stephen, here they are after the one day of the Lord, is bringing up the fact y'all are doing the same thing again. And that is exactly, exactly what the Jews did. And that is what and is going to uh, bring about their destruction in the future. So the day of the Lord 
it's not going to be good for any of physical Israel. It's not. But thank God, they can be saved if they'll believe on Christ. Okay, today we've got some new prophecies. We've got the book of Revelation that's a warning to all of us. And it's a warning to them too if they'd be smart enough to open it up and read it. And you know what? While the, you know, their nation as a whole is done for, we see though that God can still save the remnant. And you know what? Just like there were people back in Amos's day that were part of that remnant who believed God, there are still some Jews out there today who are part of that remnant who believe God. Thank God He never throws away an entire nation He's always willing to, he, he looks at people as individuals too. And you know, that's a good lesson for us too. You know, like you hear about racism stuff all the time. You know, don't look at somebody and judge them just by the color of their skin. You know, uh, and, and you know, we tend to do that as a society sometimes. But you know, we need to start looking at individuals. That's what God does. Okay? And God often does come down hard on nations. We see that a lot in the Bible. But God will always, God will always spare the remnant. And this is just kind of a quick side note. But you do. We, a lot of the dispensationalists, they love to talk about how it was all about the Jews in the Old Testament. Jews in the Old Testament, you know, you couldn't do anything if you weren't a Jew. But yet, there's examples all over the Old Testament showing how people could become a Jew. Even during that time, throughout the Old Testament, if somebody wanted to serve their God, dwell in their land, they could become a Jew. You know why? Because throughout history, God has always been merciful to the remnant. Even though he pronounced some horrible judgments on many nations, God was always willing to save that remnant, that individual who would look to him and believe on him. No one has ever been completely left out of salvation just because of where they came from. God deals with things on a national basis, but he also deals with people on an individual basis too. And that's a great lesson for us. And that's why we're going to keep on soul winning. Because while our country is going to the devil, not everybody has to. There's, there's a remnant out there. Our town's got a lot of issues. But you know what? There's a remnant out there. There's people who are going to listen to the truth. And so we're going to keep taking the gospel to them. And we're not just going to write them out because, oh, this is Rock Falls. Look, you know, look at this town. No. No, there, there's a remnant out there. And we are a part of that. And so we're going to keep on looking for people that are a part of that and so they will call on the Lord and be saved. So with that, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank You so much for Your goodness to us, Lord. And Lord, I thank You so much that You don't just see us uh, as a part of a nation or a part of a family or a tribe. But You do, Lord. You look at us as individuals and You will allow anyone uh, who will call on You to be saved. And we thank You uh, for that great grace that You give us. I pray, Lord, You'll help us as we go out and we try to reach that remnant that's out there, Lord, our country. It's going downhill fast, Lord, but there are many that are out there who, if we'll just get the gospel to them, Lord, they'll listen and they'll believe on you. And I just pray you'll help us as we try to uh, spread that message. In your name we pray. Amen.